0: Thanks for listening to the Grace First well, Podcast. Bible, if you want to know Matthews, more about us, 5, head on over to gracefirst.church. To or, if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us, Sundays at ten fifty. While you're turning there, I just wanted to mention the fact that when I was asked to preach, I agreed and said, sure, that would be fine. And, but then I was given the passage, and I had two thoughts. <laughs> My first thought was, This is the Sunday before Thanksgiving. This passage doesn't seem very Thanksgiving-ish. You know, it seems a little rough. And then my second thought right behind that was, wow, they decided to give the old guy one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament. No wonder nobody else wanted it. (laughs) So it's a difficult passage. And I'll probably say that numerous times today. So please bear with me as we go through this together. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt and over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go 1 mile, go with them 2 miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. is perfect. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and its impact on our lives and what it can teach us. Lord, I pray that as we go through this difficult passage today that you will encourage our hearts and our lives, that you will speak your truth to us and that you will bless us. Thank you for all that you do. We want to give you the honor and glory and praise. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So one of the things that I try to do in almost every context where I'm teaching or preaching, I talk about the same thing over and over and over again, and that is the concept of balance. I think balance is a virtue that is terribly lacking in the church. We have this tendency as human beings to go to extremes, and Christians are not exempt from that. I get terribly frustrated with a lot of Christian infighting. As our culture deteriorates around us and gets worse and worse and worse by the day, we as Christians must put aside our differences and learn to work together. We as Christians must agree to disagree on some of the secondary things while holding up to the primary or the essential things. So what are some of the essentials? Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, co-equal, co-eternal. Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord and is the only way to the Father. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven. Those things are primary, those things are essential, and we should all be able to agree into that. Unfortunately, primary issues don't split churches and divide believers. It's usually the peripheral things. Some pastor or Christian leader wants to be edgy or controversial and says something and dupes a bunch of us into supporting that, and we get carried away and we stray away from the truth and from those essentials. I could give you a lot of examples, but that's not my point. I want to encourage you to always try to keep things in balance. To understand the Sermon on the Mount, you must keep things in balance in order to mind the depths of everything that Jesus is trying to teach. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is teaching what it means to be a mature, healthy disciple. They're tough words, they're hard words, and sometimes they're easily misunderstood. In a lot of New Testament contexts, Jesus preaches some very difficult things, but the Sermon on the Mount seems to be a message, an extended message, with incredibly challenging, difficult words and concepts. This passage and its difficulty has been used and abused in the past to speak about things and not recognize the balance in order to understand it. You can take a few of the things that I'm going to say and take them to the extreme, but please try and hold these things in balance today. Having said that, Before I get to the passage, there's one other thing that I think is really important and one of the things that I would really love to share with you this morning. It's a discipleship principle that I think bears consideration whenever you're referring to the Sermon on the Mount. In John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus says, he's speaking to the Pharisees and some Jewish believers, and he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then later on, he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul in Galatians chapter 1, or chapter 5, in this wonderful passage in Galatians, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ Jesus has set you free. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And then later in verse 13, he goes on to say, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. For the Sermon on the Mount, for some people, this seems like the opposite of freedom. It seems more legalistic. It sounds like the law. But you have to understand the biblical concept of freedom. You see, in America, we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, and you are free as long as your freedom, as long as your actions don't infringe on someone else's freedom. Well, biblical freedom is kind of like that, except biblical freedom is freedom within boundaries. And Jesus does a great job in the Sermon on the Mount clearly defining what some of those boundaries are. Christian freedom is extremely important to our faith. We have wonderful freedom right up until we tip too, tiptoe too close to those boundaries and try and cross over them. So how do you see the Sermon on the Mount? Do you see it as a law-filled direction, or do you see it as a spirit-filled, spirit-guided direction leading you into freedom? Over the past few weeks, Pastor Todd has done a great job explaining that if you were to take the Sermon on the Mount as letter of the law kind of thinking, we'd all look like a pretty scary bunch because we'd all be walking around with one eye, one hand, one foot, maybe no eyes, maybe no ears, you know, it, could, it, it would look pretty scary. We're called to live according to the Spirit seek the Holy Spirit's direction in our lives, to walk in the Spirit. And whenever you do so, it gives you tremendous freedom. But the problem we have is that sin takes away that freedom. To willfully ignore God's boundaries will enslave you to sin. Whenever you step across God's boundary in your life, sin sticks its hooks into you and seeks to drag you away into slavery of that sin. In the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14 and following, James speaks of the progression of sin. He says, each person is tempted, and when each person is tempted, they are dragged away by their own evil desires, and then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Our desires, our own desires, lead us to ignore God's boundaries, and give us over to bondage to death. Back a few verses earlier from what I read in verse 28, Jesus says that if you look at someone else with lust in your heart, it is to sin. So is that a letter of the law matter or is that a spiritual heart issue matter? Well, I think you could agree that it's a heart issue. But Jesus uses law issues throughout the Sermon on the Mount to try and teach heart principles, spirit-led heart principles. One of Israel's problems throughout their history is that the Jews approached the law as a bunch of rules and regulations. They became so wrapped up in worshiping the law that they missed the heart of the one who gave it. They were so concerned about obedience to the works of the law that they ignored the spiritual faith that they needed in the lawgiver. They saw obeying the law as a claim on God, rather than living out a faith, living out a life of faith and trust in God. So the Sermon on the Mount is really about heart surgery, or more appropriately, even a heart transplant. It's not about following a set of rules and regulations more stringently. If you're looking at the law or the rules and regulations of the law to keep you from sinning, you will always fall short because the law was not and is not a sin management system. Jesus was teaching the spiritual focus of heart change, allowing the spirit to keep you within the biblical boundaries and to keep you from sin. When Jesus speaks in the Gospels, you have to understand that whenever He's speaking to people, He is consistently speaking to them on a spiritual level. But they often miss it because they respond on a physical level and in the physical realm. Two of my greatest examples of that are when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus at night and whenever Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. In both situations, Jesus is speaking to them in spiritual words, trying to lead them into the Spirit, but they are so caught in the physical realm and in their daily lives that they can't really hear what He has to say. The entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is a challenge to the status quo. Jesus quotes the law and raises the bar challenging heart motives. Now, If you were one of his listeners, you had to be thinking, wait a minute, I can't even do the things in the law, and now you're raising the bar on it? That's impossible. But you have to see that Jesus was also trying to communicate what God's intention was in the law in the very first place. God always intended a heart focus. Today, when I read those words in the beginning of this passage, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, What did you think? Most of us, for our first thought, is that's about revenge or retribution. But that's not what the law was given to produce. Whenever you read it within its context, it's specifically talking about people who are fighting or people who are punishing their slaves or other situations like that. And if they went too far and hurt injured someone even outside of their fight, that when this got brought to a court or brought to the council or to the group of elders or the officials, that they could exact up to an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth or a life for a life. But they weren't required to go that far, but they were required not to go any further than that. So if you read Exodus twenty-one, twenty-three within its context, it's saying, don't fight in the first place. But if you do fight, don't lose control of yourself. Don't fly into a rage. Don't get to the point where you lose control and injure someone else, even if you injure them unintentionally. You're going outside the bounds of the law. So this law, like many others, was given for the protection of the weaker and more vulnerable person. Jesus cares for the broken and the hurting. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Jesus says that we should have that same kind of heart. Whenever you look at verses 38 through 47, they all... Kind of fall under this same overarching theme of sacrificing yourself but I want to make a couple clarifying statements before I get into this because I think this is really important because this is where it has been abused so first listen to this very carefully if you're in an abusive situation if you're in any way experiencing physical or emotional abuse, get help immediately. Get out. Get away. Talk to someone. Talk to your pastor or to your church leaders. Talk to law enforcement. Do whatever you need to do to get out of an abusive situation. God is not calling you to be a doorman. God is not saying to allow others to walk all over you. God is not calling you to be victimized. God loves you more than you can possibly comprehend. God has a special place in his heart for the broken and the hurting. And his desire for you is to find healing and hope. Years ago when I was in pastoral ministry, I spent quite a bit of time doing biblical counseling. And I learned some really important things that I wanted to try and share with you. One of the last times I spoke, I shared some of these things, but I wanted to go into a little more depth this time. A lot of us have gone through real traumatic situations in our lives that have left us wounded, broken, hurting, and to be honest, fragile. I'm going to describe something that I mentioned, and I want you to hear it within the context of this passage. I'm going to use the term victim to identify this phase. Now sometimes the word victim has very negative connotations, but I want you to hear it today as only being descriptive of this particular phase. The person who is a victim, who is in the victim phase, has been trapped by the hurt and pain of abuse. They see themselves as pawns in a game where someone is forcing them and all forces are working against them. In order to move out of the victim phase, it takes healing and growth and love and encouragement. And then, hopefully, you can learn to become a survivor. The survivor phase recognizes the damage that the abuse has caused and how that's changed a person's life and how they can learn to grow and live in spite of the pain. And then, hopefully, progress into the phase of becoming an overcomer. Overcomers recognize the past hurt and pain in their lives and how it impacts them, but they refuse to be limited by their past. And they refuse to be held hostage by the pain. And they grow to use their past to minister to others who were in the same situation that they were in. But it takes a strong mature disciple to become an overcomer and to help others find freedom in Christ. Free people, free people. Hurt people, hurt people. I've been at this long enough to know that these are difficult words and some of you might even be offended by them, but that's not my intent. My hope and prayer is this background will help you understand the passage and what I'm getting ready to say next even better. So now, verses 38 through 47 seems to have a theme of sacrifice but maybe even better said, a theme of suffering. Nobody likes to talk about suffering. Nobody wants to deal with it. Our society is built on using lots of different methods to avoid suffering. A lot of people use drugs and alcohol, bad relationships, and lots of other coping methods in order to deal with suffering and avoid its pain. And then on top of that, sometimes Scripture doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. James says to count it all joy when you face all kinds of trials. Joy? And then in Acts chapter 5, Peter and some other disciples are beaten by the Sanhedrin. And as they go out, they're rejoicing in the fact that they have been counted worthy to suffer in the name of Christ. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are severely beaten and thrown into prison. But they respond by singing, praying, rejoicing in the fact that they were able to suffer. Who rejoices in suffering? It goes against the grain, seems antithetical to our teaching and our thinking. We think we should run from it. Dr. Diane Langberg wrote a book called Suffering in the Heart of God. It's a very challenging book, and it's not for the faint of heart. Dr. Langberg was a trauma counselor and dealt with people who were trauma victims all over the world. She tells how Jesus' love and compassion for the broken and hurting and his desire for victims to find hope and transformation. She paints a picture that suffering is part of the human experience And nothing, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to escape it. Our best hope is to learn how to live up under it. Overall, I think we have a very inadequate theology of suffering. Too often we're like the disciples who looked at the man who had been born blind and wonder who sinned to cause his blindness. We see suffering as some kind of punishment. If someone is suffering, it must be their own fault. It must be something that they've done. It must be some sin in the past that they didn't ask for forgiveness for that's come around to bite them and is causing them the suffering. But Jesus warns emphatically that that's not the case. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus also says, no servant is greater than his master. So if our master suffered, it could happen to us. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. Those passages don't sound like to me that we get to escape suffering and persecution. Instead, it sounds like that's really what we sign up for. I asked specifically that Isaiah passage be read this morning. I realized that that was a very long passage, but I had an intent and purpose in doing so. I love the book of Isaiah. It has been tremendously powerful in my life. And in the book of Isaiah, in chapters 42, chapter 49, chapter 50... The end of chapter 52, the last few verses of 52 in the entirety of chapter 53, which was read this morning, Isaiah, under the, the Holy Spirit's inspiration, wrote about this suffering servant who was to come. Isaiah wrote about the suffering servant of Yahweh, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ. And in the midst of that passage in chapter 53, verse 3, there's an incredibly profound set of words. It says that he was despised and rejected of men, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. In George Friedrich Handel's Messiah, one of the most hauntingly beautiful arias is taken directly from this passage. The soloist sings, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I can barely stand to listen to that because it becomes so emotional and I experience a profound sense of grief for all that my Savior suffered. interesting that Daniel picks John chapter 1 this morning because in the opening words of John chapter 1 John wrote that the word came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him the Jews had been looking for the Messiah for centuries and when the Messiah came and stood in their midst they rejected him Jesus completely rejected, was completely rejected by his own people. And he felt the suffering and the pain of that. At Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept. Pastor Todd mentioned this too a couple of weeks ago. Jesus wept at that tomb because of the devastation and destruction that sin has caused. Jesus dealt with 12 disciples who even though they were closest to him never really understood what he was doing, why he was there or what he was hoping to accomplish. And in his Passion Week Jesus was beaten, scourged, mocked, crucified and killed by those who claimed to be God followers. The point is that Jesus suffered throughout his life. Jesus The second person of the triune Godhead suffered. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus, our God, suffered, and unfortunately, so will we. So what does that have to do with this passage? Let me repeat an earlier point. Jesus is teaching how mature, healthy disciples need to respond to persecution and suffering. Jesus says to mature disciples, don't run away from suffering. Instead, learn how to embrace it. Jesus calls mature disciples to be salt and light to a dying world, specifically to those who don't know Jesus. In verse 45, it says that it rains on the just and the unjust. My mother used to quote that to me all the time. It rains on the just and the unjust. God doesn't play any favorites, and He's not going to spare anyone from suffering as long as you are on the face of this earth. About 50 years ago, (laughs) about 50 years ago, I was in a Bible study, and a friend of mine said, when a pagan suffers, a believer suffers the same thing so that the world can see the difference. That has stuck with me through to this day. You don't get to escape suffering. So what does the healthy, mature disciple need to learn from this? Instead of asking, why me? When we go through suffering, we should ask, how can I glorify God in this situation? In the midst of my suffering, how can I lift up my Savior and glorify my God? Please note that Jesus makes it clear throughout this passage that this persecution comes from evil people. It is the evil one who is going to slap you. It's the evil one who is going to sue you. It's the evil person who is going to force you to go the extra mile. So this requires heart surgery, a change of heart in order to willingly face, submit to, and stand up under suffering. In fact, not to face it, but to embrace it. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life can you stand up to Jesus' calling. I think I told you this was going to be a hard passage. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He pushes this even further. So in verse 44, he says, you've heard that it was say, love your neighbor. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So part of the problem we have understanding this is that we have a very limited, poor understanding of this term love. In this passage specifically, it is agape love. Jesus took this term from first century culture, ripped it out of the first century culture, and changed the definition to make it something much more powerful than what they believed, thought about love. When we talk about love, we usually think of emotional and some kind of syrupy, sweet kind of thing, and we let everyone go, but that's not what agape love is. Agape love is self-sacrificing, self-denying, self-giving love. Agape love is self-giving. Jesus calls us to give ourselves away, to live your life as an act of giving, to live your life with a giving purpose. With agape love, he calls you to deny yourself, not to make yourself the focus of all that you do and say, but as Paul says, to see others as better than yourselves. Agape love is to sacrifice yourself, to place others and their needs above your own. But to cement this and to drive this point home and to make it perfectly clear, understand that agape in its fullest expression is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus constantly gave of Himself. Every story in the Gospels tells of His giving. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, but yet He bowed down and served others. He poured himself out to love and care and give himself for those that hated him and for those the world had discarded. Jesus denied himself as creator, as God in human form. He didn't go about revealing who he really was. In fact, he hid himself and concealed his glory. He gave up his rights and denied the glory that was due him. And to say that Jesus sacrificed himself to the essence of the gospel message. Jesus was the perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice for our sin and gave his life to save us. Jesus lived out agape love and calls us as his followers to do the same. Our calling is to love with a self-giving, self-denying, self-sacrificing kind of love. Not just to those who are close of us, but even to the pagans or the evil person so that they might be drawn to the Father. One more verse to talk about. That very last one, verse 48. Everyone has an opinion on what this verse means. I've even heard some people say that Jesus never asks us to do anything that we can't do so it's possible for us to be perfect. (laughs) Thank you for playing. (laughs) I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I'm not sure how anyone could even attempt to say that after reading the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to repeat this again and again and again. God is calling us to have a different heart, a heart that seeks Him and not ourselves. You have to know that at perfection it is impossibility this side of heaven. We've been trained since the day of our birth to seek ourselves. Parents, tried desperately to tame that desire in their children. formative years. But unfortunately, in the end, for the most part, we're still self-centered, self, self, self-focused folks. And that's far from perfection. Many, many years ago, um, there was a widow in the church where I grew up. Her name was... Um, I didn't mean to get emotional today. I had this all under control right up until this point. Her name was Aretha Marshawn. She was a godly woman. She did amazing things for the church. She did amazing things for missions. And she did amazing things for the kingdom. She helped Karen and I survive the financial burden of going to seminary. So one day, a bunch of us in a young adult group... Again, I told you that was a long time ago. (laughs) And this young adult group asked this wonderful woman, how do you live such a godly, holy life? And she responded, the closer I get to Jesus, the more I know about him, the more I know how much I fall short. We were stunned, but over the years, I come to understand a little bit more about what perfection really was and what God's concept of that is, and realized how far from perfection I truly am. One other quick story. I heard a story years ago about a sermon that Bill Hyles was giving, and he was talking about holiness. And as part of his sermon, he had a rope hung from the ceiling And he asked the congregation to think about themselves at at what point they were on that rope, if at the very top of the rope it was perfect holiness. And he went through a great thing of trying to talk to them about where they saw themselves and how far up the rope they were. And then he walked over to the rope and pointed about two feet off the floor and said, that's where Billy Graham thinks he is. And then he pointed down to about a foot and a half off of the floor and says, that's where Mother Teresa thinks she is. The more you know about how holy, how perfect, how complete, how totally other our God is, the more you realize how much you fall short. And it shouldn't give you any self-confidence in yourself. For me, my desire is to be perfect and to be holy, but I'm not. I continually do self-serving kind of things. I'm not good at loving my enemies. Jesus tells me to resist the evil person, but I'm sure I frequently do. Jesus calls me to give myself away, but i constantly worried about how it might inconvenience me or what kind of an effect it might have on me. I just talked about needing to have a good theology of suffering, but I'm not sure that I'm ready to sign up to embrace even more suffering in my life. When the Apostle Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, I wonder if I'm right there with him, elbowing and fighting and struggling to take over first place. I need heart surgery. I need a changed heart so that I can love with agape love just like Jesus loved. Again, I'm with the Apostle Paul. Wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I warned you that this was a difficult passage. It requires strong, mature disciples who live out their faith, live out agape love for others. But we can't do this alone. More than anything else today, I believe this passage is absolute confirmation that you and I need help. We need a Savior. We need the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. How do you turn the other cheek? How do you give up your rights to serve those who hate you? How do you love your enemies with a self-giving and self-sacrificing, self-denying kind of love? How do you try to be perfect? I can't do it on my own, and I don't think you can either. After years of being involved in discipleship, I believe that in order to be a mature disciple who can disciple others, you need to find healing for your life, healing from your past. I don't expect young believers or those who are freshly coming out of hurtful or abusive situations to turn around and minister to others right away. I believe that it takes healing and discipleship to become mature, and it takes maturity to minister to others spiritual health healthy is a crucial part of becoming a disciple and should be a prerequisite for disciple makers God can use you wherever you are but to be most effective especially within discipleship it need you need to become a mature healthy disciple I hope that encourages you today and that's not a source of discouragement or frustration for you So to close I don't know where you're at today. This may sound way too difficult. You may be stuck in a rut and don't see any way out. But I can tell you that Jesus offers you hope. You may be in need of all the love and care and support and healing that Jesus can provide, but be assured that He is ready to provide it when you call on Him. Or... You may not know about Jesus and his great great love so if you want to know him if you want to find hope and healing for your life if you want to find rest for your soul I'd love to tell you more about the one who gave himself denied himself and sacrificed himself for you Jesus is calling you to come home don't delay